So hello and welcome to the 21st episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of Seed Strategies, and I'm also your host. All of this is possible because of you and our amazing sponsors, the insurance people, and Evolver, where today we are hosting this first ever live taping of the show. Today, we'll be talking to the four women of the Illinois General Assembly who led the way for passage of legal adult use cannabis in Illinois, affectionately known as the Marijuana Moms. Hello, ladies. I love that. I love it. Everywhere I go, they're like, I love the Marijuana Moms. Um, so please, that's right. Uh, so please welcome State Senators Heather Staines, Toy Hutchinson, State Representatives Kelly Cassidy, and Jahan gordon Brat Booth. And again, thank you all for joining us on the heels of such an incredible legislative achievement. I mean, you guys have been getting coverage all over the country, locally. Uh, you've really led the nation, and it just shows you the power of women when they're in a leadership position, I think, of what can get done. I'm excited to partner on this month's episode with both Legalize Illinois and Illinois Democratic Women, whose co-president, Jennifer Lee, is sharing hosting duties tonight with me, and she helped legalize Illinois' efforts in Springfield. So, Jen, do you want to just briefly share a little bit about both of your organizations with our audience? Sure. So, Legalize Illinois is a coalition of advocates of over 30 organizations across the state. It's an incredibly diverse coalition that came together in this space to help push the adult use cannabis bill to a win in the House and the Senate, the General Assembly. Um, we're very excited about the bill signing tomorrow. We have labor like ATU and UFCW. We have Equality Illinois. We have the traditional marijuana legalization advocates like Chicago Normal and Illinois Normal, traditional activist groups in Chicago, like Chicago Votes, Black Roots Alliance, and we have a veterans organization. We have clergy for new drug policy. We're, we're very proud of the diversity of the coalition and very proud of how they all stuck together and, you know, kept advocating for this bill. And, you know, our sponsors were incredibly responsive to them. And it's just, it, it's a really incredible thing to be a part of the coalition. Well, thank you, of course, for all that you did with your coalition and helping to get this done today. So thanks, Jen, and it's a great segue into getting into the conversation, starting with our special guests here. You know, usually at the start of these podcasts, I give a pretty detailed overview of the issue that we're usually going to tackle, but you are all the experts here, so I'm going to leave that in your hands tonight to help put it all into context. But I'll just start by giving a recent timeline of the medical and recreational cannabis in Illinois uh, movement here, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So medical cannabis passed in 2013, decriminalization passed in 2016, recreational use proposed in March 2017, medical cannabis expanded in August 2018, and then of course recreational adult legalization uh, use passed just this past session. So Senator Staines, let's start with you. Can you walk us through the recent history here in Illinois and how you got involved as a legislative leader on this policy? And we'd also love to hear from any of you more about when and how recreational adult use cannabis becomes available in Illinois and how it's all expected to work. Okay, there, there's a lot in that. <laughs> so I, I'm sure my, uh, <laughs> all my uh, colleagues here are going to be piping in as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just want to say before we start delving into the details, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, when you want something said, ask a man. When you want something done, ask a woman. And I think we showed that to be the case. <laughs> 
glad we're having this in the space. Thank you very much for, for hosting it here. I think that's really appropriate. You know, and I'll say, I came to this first when we were doing the med medical uh, cannabis. I was in the legislature at that time under trying to determine whether or not I supported medical cannabis program, quite frankly. And I came to the conclusion in doing my research that, you know, we really should just be legalizing it. And in fact, a Republican colleague sitting in the exec committee herself was saying the same thing. And so from the get-go, that was sort of my stance on it, that prohibition simply does not work. If we care about keeping kids safe and away from it, it's better to have a safe, regulated environment. Um, and then also to just do so much reparation around uh, the harm that's been done by the war on drugs, you can't do that with medical cannabis. You have to go to the adult use legalization to really delve into and address all those kinds of issues. And it really was a team effort with what Jen Lee did with all the coalition. And it was definitely up and down roller coaster making that work because, you know, this is a complicated bill and there's no way we're making everybody happy in the way we landed. You just can't with something that's so ginormous on what you're trying to accomplish. And the big thing I want to, you know, say is obviously what, what we're going to be doing, you know, so the nuts and bolts of it are come January 1st of 2020, you can go into dispensary and purchase up to 30 grams of cannabis. That's the amount for out-of-staters. It'll be 15 grams. We added a lot of new licensing categories to the, to the equation because we want a lot more entry points into the cannabis industry. The medical program itself in Illinois is considered a model nationally. People are coming here to understand how we did it. And what I mean by a model is that the regulatory structure itself, seed to sale tracking, really works. When you find a legal product being sold someplace, it's not from Illinois. It's worked really well regulatorily. What hasn't worked is it has not been a very diverse industry, and it's been a small program. So we believe now that not only are we going to have the best regulatory system, we think we are now setting the standard for how to do this with a social equity lens. And that's what I think makes me the most proud of the bill we passed, is the way we approach that social equity piece of it. And I'm going to stop stop there and let other people start weighing in on how we did that, because, you know, the, it's a very complicated bill, and, and I really want everybody sharing and discussing it. I'm actually, I'm going to ask the next question, because I think the audience wants to know this. Um, I'm going to toss this to you, Representative Cassidy. Can you tell us about how you and Senator Staines first partnered up, and then with Senator Hutchinson and, Senator jo and Representative Gordon Booth, and how the marijuana moms came together. That's what we want to know. Like, right. the, the story behind the story. <laughs> the, the list of nicknames that apply to the four of us. We need a t-shirt Canna bitches? Yeah, yeah, we got, you can't say right. that. Canna chicks. <laughs> Cannabis queens. Yeah. Moms Taking on Taking suggestions for logos. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a lot. There's a whole lot. So, I mean, the four of us were already girlfriends. Like, that, that was a big piece of this. We've all worked on other bills together, and it's not just that we worked on bills together. We spend time together down there. Jahan and I sit just a few seats apart. Toy and, Jahan, uh, Toy and Heather sit a few seats apart. Heather is my senator, so we do a lot of bills together. Heather was the, the Senate sponsor when we had to rerun the ticket bill, and I got, I got my choice of, of Senate sponsors and tossed it to Heather. So Instead of a man. Instead of a dude who grabbed <laughs> the bill the first year that it got vetoed. So that's how these things happen. But, you know, so the four of us already had this, this relationship. We already had a, a real foundation of trust and friendship. And that doesn't mean that this was easy anyway, but it made it, it made it possible to have the conversations that had to be had. It made it possible to stay at the table when things got hard because we were super invested in each other. 
and we were invested in everyone's success. And I think that made a huge difference. And Johan, stop looking at me because you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I don't, is this on? Like yeah. the, okay, can you hear me? So is this a directional microphone? Hello. Okay. <laughs> so one, one of the things that I think is unusual, every person who is a sponsor of the bill is the master of their own bill. So if you're the chief sponsor, you know, you can, you really have a lot of sway as to who's going to come on board, who's going to be your chief, your top five chief co-sponsors. You, it doesn't move unless you're ready for it to move. Like you, you really are a master of your own piece of legislation. It was one of the first lessons I learned when I came down to the Capitol. It's like control the paper, follow the money. When you control the paper, then you follow the money. Then you see why people think what they think <laughs> and how they come to the conclusions they come when you follow the money. And one of the things that was different in this situation was that in the Senate, this, this was Heather's baby, and she had already done the decriminalization. She'd already done the ticket stuff. She'd already done all that. And when she asked me, like, I really want to do this with you. Can you, I really want to do this with you. Not only did I feel, um, one, that there was already, like we said, we are, there was already the friendship that was there. But all the way up until we finally presented that bill in May in the executive committee, and I was prepared to sit in my seat on the executive committee behind the dais as Heather went to go present her bill. And we've been working on it. She threw things to me all the time. We've been working on it. And she looked at me. She said, sit down there with me. Come with me. This is the, come with me. Sit with me. It's the, it's the right thing to do. They need to see us both. And I don't know that that necessarily would have happened in a different circumstance with different people at the helm for that. I don't know that that, that in and of itself was, I think, indicative of the way women come to complex situations like this. We tend to be a lot more collaborative. And it's not like we need to like bulldoze through a room and go, this is the way it's going to be come hell or high water. I say when women are running, when, <laughs> so when guys decide to run for office, they're like, I am going to be the next because I'm the best and I'm about to do this because this is what I'm about to be and I'm about to do this. <laughs> There's no consideration as to like whether they're qualified for it, whether they have like the training or the background for it. It's like, I am going to be this because I am the next and I'm going to do this. That's what I'm about to do. And women tend to, that's what happens. And I'm telling you for, for anything from anywhere. But we come to it, they're like, we think you should run for office. We're like, ooh, who's going to take care of the kids? How am I going to raise money? Am I really ready for this? Do I, can, I, can, I, can I really do this? Like, we, we come to it a little differently. And it's normally why it takes people asking women to run two and three times. There's actually research on this at Rutgers. I'm not talking outside of my neck. There, there's reason why we get asked and recruited into running. So when we take on a bill like this, and you're in a situation like this in the Capitol where it is normally angst and consternation and anger and politics and separation and you can't sit next to Republicans, you can't talk to people who don't come from it, you don't, I mean, all of that stuff that we're in the middle of, there, there, is, there is no other group of women that I can think of that I would have wanted to be in that soup with than these women right here, which is incredible. And when it comes to that question of who's going to take care of the kids and all that stuff, we actually did all that yeah, stuff for each other, too. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I think that um, while this was going on, my daughter got incredibly sick, and we had to spend some time up here at Lurie's, and we're trying to, like, navigate what that looks like. And Heather's like, hey, I know where you can stay. And I don't live in Chicago. I live in Peoria. So coming, like, coming up here today, I'm sipping on this wine extra fast because I was concerned that I was going to be late. But that's how this relationship, when, th when thinking about how did this come together, it's incredibly organic. Toy's my 
sister. She's my daughter's godmother. She was the matron of honor at my wedding. We're roommates. When I've had any number of deaths happen to me in my life, somehow, some way, Kelly Cassidy always makes her way to Peoria, Illinois, and pulls up in a van or the backseat of a Buick. <laughs> not, your, not your grandmother's Buick. <laughs> to say, baby, what do you need? I will cook for you. I'm here for you. So those kinds of relationships make it incredibly easy when we're having very real conversations around race, around equity, and the challenges that exist in that space. And oftentimes, race can be a, diff a very difficult issue for people to tackle and to talk about in a real, genuine, authentic way. And we had all those conversations. And even times when we would say, hmm, I don't know if that's going to work. We didn't, we didn't, you could talk it out. we didn't belabor it and we didn't like let it simmer. We said, Hey, I don't know if that's going to work. And here's why. And then, the, and then the response was, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. Let's move forward. That just, that sounds like it's a simple task, but it's not. And that doesn't happen in most of our spaces, which is why we have a lot of the issues that we have. We were able to bulldoze past so many of those issues and many more because of the complexity of the very real, authentic, genuine relationship that we all have. Well, I, I, we are also gonna touch on um, what's groundbreaking about this legislation as well, which is of course um, how you dug into the restorative justice and the equity issues. But there was something else that was significant about this that caught my eye and I think others as well, and that's Illinois was the first state to pass recreational cannibal, uh, or cannibal, cannibal. That's, <laughs> that's the next that's thing. Next that's that's on the next we're session. Work on that. The next session, not you know this we session. Eat our own. Right. <laughs> what, why that at time, one at a time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's on my mind right now. <laughs> Too much white wine. I don't know. Not enough cannabis. Um, <laughs> so, um, but you were the first to pass it through the legislature, which was significant because it's my understanding, and I was not involved in any way. I didn't have any clients in this space. I got to read about it, hear about it vicariously through Jen, of course, but it allowed you to have control over the taxation and the regulatory process, among other things, but it also makes it more challenging to get done, which Representative Cassidy was telling me about. So. Why, um, so tell us why you went this route and maybe some of those difficult conversation stories that you did have, because everyone always loves behind the scenes, right? So Senator Hutchinson, why don't you give us a little bit of background on that? So one of the things that, so I'm, I serve right now as president of the National Conference of State Legislatures. So that's all 50 state legislatures in the country. And so I started looking at as, as each of the 10 states came online. And we have a task force there. It's called the State and Local Ta uh, Taxation Task Force. So we said, and I chair revenue. So it was really fascinating to me to look at how each of these states did it. And the way I normally describe it is like this, is like every state did it by ballot referenda. And so the question was, do you think this should be taxed and regulated like alcohol? And of course, the answer to that by most people, generationally or not, is yes. It is much more complicated and complex to say, how? <laughs> how? So what ends up happening is without going through the committee process and people vetting ideas or doing a whole lot of research, it gets put directly to the people. It ends up with, now it's legal. Figure it out. 
So those 10 states, so I got to see it from this like 50,000 foot level. You had 10 states that were, that had adult use and you had 33 states. Please make that air come back on. Or do we need it not when the thing, when I'm having a hot flash out of here. It's like a, right. We're talking about women of a certain age while we're doing this. I need my fan. Here. So yeah, I, I know there's um, CBDs for that, but anyway. Um, <laughs> That having said that. So I got to see the 10 states that were legal and the 33 states that had a, a medical program. So then when it started like really jumping and I started kind of, you know, I was a chief, I was a, spo a sponsor on the medical program. I, then I ran the hemp bill and it took me three sessions to get hemp to go through. And it was like, why does everybody agree with this? But it's having such a hard time getting it through. So we finally got that through. And then when these ladies started talking about, oh, decriminalization, when Heather was running the decriminalization bill on the floor, me and Kelly were standing behind Heather, <laughs> cracking up because somebody, I will never forget this, asked, so how much is that? And me and Kelly were like, oh, about three fingers. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm embarrassed. She to was say. running. She was running the bill, and we were in the back, like, because part of this, part of it was that we were thinking and talking about this as though it's not like when you legal legalize this that you're all of a sudden going to create new smokers or new consumers of this product. This is happening already. It's happening right now. You you think we were standing out on the corner telling everybody? We're about to legalize. You all should just come join. Like, that is not what it is at all. It literally was, how do we do this in a way where we answer really hard questions about public health and social justice and equity in a way that no other state had done it? No other state had done it. And every time they attempted to do it, it was on county and municipal levels. It didn't have the backing or the purse of the state. It didn't have the enforcement mechanisms of the state. So we had a friendly governor and it was like, oh, you guys, we might actually be able to do something that's really, really special. Well, and, and I, keep in mind, like when you do a ballot initiative, who writes the ballot initiative? The, the four guys with the money to be in the room to write the right. ballot initiative. <laughs> right, and that Whereas was totally different. We knew we could do this differently. Totally different. So it was when that, when you look at it from that 50,000 foot level down to like what actually happened in Illinois and how much progress they have and what a difference a year and a governor makes. Mm -hmm. And then I want to add, then, I think the reason we were able to accomplish it where, you know, other states have been trying to do this legislatively, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut have all failed. We were just out in New York to try to help them see whether we could get it over the finish line, but they did not uh, accomplish it. I think that the nut to crack is the social equity piece of it, which has not been done when you do it by referendum anywhere. And that's the thing that we spent the majority of our time wrestling with is how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to get into a little bit, because I think this is really critical. I think the, the reason we were able to do this legislatively is we didn't lead with the money. Illinois has a, obviously has a revenue problem, uh, you know, budget problems. We all know that. Um, very early on, mm -hmm. we had strong conversations with the governor's office that we can't have this be about revenue or it will fail. It needs to be about social equity. And they totally adopted that view as well. The governor and the governor's <laughs> office, Christian Mitchell, was a champion for us in the governor's office on this approach. And we had talked about it, and then I'm going to, I'm hoping that Jahan might talk some more details on this then, because she, just the way she wore how important this was, getting this right, you could see it in the way she held her body during meetings. It was just amazing just how strong and stoic she had to stay throughout it. And it was really challenging. But we always view this as a three-legged stool. We wanted to get expungements. And in our bill, we have more expunged, uh, more eligible records to be expunged than every other state that has legalized combined in total. 
and that includes California. It's huge, hugely impactful. And then we knew we needed to diversify the industry very significantly because while we had a good regulatory system, it was not a diverse system at all. So we worked very hard on how to do that. And then we also knew that the revenue needed to go back to communities that had been hurt by the war on drugs. So we very much viewed this as a three-legged stool. And I'm hoping that we're going to get more details from John on this. So, so coming, coming from Peoria, Peoria faces some of the very same issues that you see in the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, Rockford, Decatur, East St. Louis, many of these communities are facing the very same issues just on a different scale. And so when thinking about how we move forward with this bill, knowing that we have a supportive governor who on the campaign trail not only talks about the legalization of marijuana along with Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, but they talked about doing it in a way where we had an equity lens. So to us, that was the license to go for as much as we possibly could get in a bill and not having any other state to look at as a model, it did become challenging because you are then facing what's legal, what's not legal, what can you say? I mean, there, listen, there are gonna be folks that say that this bill isn't enough because it doesn't say my cousin gets a dispensary, my mom gets a <laughs> cultivation center. There are folks that think that it should say only black and brown people can now sell marijuana now that it's legal. And that's not a thing, right? That's not gonna happen. But we did craft this bill in a way that is race neutral so that it will stand up to strict scrutiny, but done clearly in a way to ensure that the market is diversified. If you look at the R3 board that will be chaired by uh, Lieutenant Governor Stratton, that, that board is going to preside over about $125 million in investment that is going to go back into communities that have been divested in for the last 80 years. $125 million along with the additional resources that we're going to continue to send to those communities throughout the budgetary process. That's, those are, that's real money. Those are resources that are now going to be allocated to grassroots, community-based organizations that have been ignored, that have been left out, and they have not been pulled into this process in a way that allows them to do what uniquely they can do in their communities to have a positive impact and change on those communities. Working through the issue of expungement, I was very much so connected to this issue. I started doing expungement summits in my district about three years ago, and it is it's sad when you see the, the vast amount of people that do not have a clean slate. They are facing the very real collateral consequences and oftentimes for very real small issues like a marijuana conviction, they now can't get housing. They now cannot find a decent job that pays more than $9, $10 an hour. And not only are they calcified in poverty, but so are their children, right? And so knowing that we had to do this in a way that not only allowed for people a very real remedy that they could access, but have it done in a way where it's easy to access. Because what we know from the data is that although we have expungement policies on the books and we've had them for years, only 3% of the population that are facing convictions actually go out and seek that relief. But they often don't seek that relief because of the the challenge in acquiring legal counsel, it's typically around $5,000 to go for an expungement or sealment. If you don't live in a community where they are having regular expungement summits, 
that's what it's going to cost you. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to ensure that not only the folks that are going to go through that automatic expungement process, but even those folks that have up to 500 grams, that have had 500 grams as it relates to their convictions, also have access to high quality, leaned in legal services. One of the things that I learned is that all legal services aren't the same. You have some legal services that, oh, I'm a lawyer and I'm nice and my husband makes all the money, but I just do this because it's nice to do. And then you have beasts, <laughs> like the folks that work at CGLA that will pile up eight, nine lawyers in a van and they will come to a town near you to represent <laughs> your people. <laughs> Those are the kinds of folks that we wanted to ensure are gonna be funded through this policy to ensure that folks have the ability to move forward with their lives. Clearly, men in suits are gonna be making millions upon millions of dollars and creating generational wealth for the family. license to sell metric tons of it. Yes, the very That's least what we we're talking about is give people a clean slate to move forward. The other piece was again ensuring that this industry is reflective of the entire state of Illinois. So we look at a lot of industries in Illinois and they aren't diverse. We wrote this bill in such a way that, again, it's race neutral, but there is clearly a desire to ensure that when we look back, and that's the beauty of this bill, is that there's going to be hard, a hard lid that goes on this bill after year one to look at what does this industry look like, who are the players in the industry, is it as diverse as we would like it to be? That will then trigger a disparity study so that even with all the language that we have tightly and legally crafted to try to hope that this creates an avenue for people to be able to get into the space. If that doesn't happen, we still have policy measures in place to ensure that when we look back, that this industry hopefully is as diverse as all of us hope for it to be. I just, I just wanted to add one thing about, and that's because Heather mentioned how difficult it was to have some of these conversations and even the way Representative Gordon Booth held, had to hold herself in those things. And most people, when you're talking about behind the scenes, there was no major African-American group calling on us mm. to do this. Not one. Matter of fact, um, <laughs> the national NAACP was opposed. And, you, and you, we had to deal with the again. very real... Say that again. The national NAACP was opposed. And we had to deal with the, re the very real thing generationally within our own communities... And, and all of the anger that comes with what we know happened in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so when you put all, when you layer all that in that mix and to be in rooms where you're, we are negotiating with state's attorneys and sheriffs and Republicans and law enforcement, <laughs> mm -hmm. like all those people in those things. And there were times, I used to joke and say that I, I was gonna have a meme of Jahan sitting there saying, that's gonna be a problem. Because <laughs> she, would, she would literally sit there and go, like, it was almost like putting your body in the gap for the communities that you represent in a way where all the toxicity that goes with that in the midst of a very intense legislative session, and it's hard to remember back what that was, mm -hmm. because those moments those moments, those moments when I'm an NAACP kid. I grew up thinking NAACP kids grow up to be senators and to have that organization tell me that I was endangering my own children 
and coming back to the apartment with her. And there were times when it was just, I'm, I'm just going to rub her feet and we're going to cry until we get up in the morning and get on the next conference call. And no, <laughs> and it was, and it was meeting after meeting and conference yeah. call after conference call. But there were these things where we did it because we, we trusted the sponsors, the sponsors trusted us, and we yeah. believed that it was the right thing to do for our communities, knowing all of that. But there was, it wasn't like there was any, there, there weren't major black organizations with their hands on the small of our back saying, go sisters. <laughs> it wasn't that at all. It was literally like, you're not doing anything. You're not doing nearly enough. And whatever it is you come down on is not going to do anything but hurt us worse. So how could you possibly do this? It was, it was intense. It was intense for those different ways. And then to be surrounded by, at least we had, we had our girlfriends and our and the sponsors of this bill that yep. gave us the space we needed yes. to demand what we needed. Yeah. And I would even say that I'm more in awe today of Jahan than I was when I first met her. And, and yeah. that's a long time Aww. ago. No doubt about that's it. That's a long time ago. That woman right there <laughs> wore black people on her back. <laughs> I have to say, Toy, to, your, to this point, there was a moment in one of our... our larger, more difficult meetings where you just stopped everything. And Jahan, you were on the phone for that one. You weren't in the room. And, and Toy just said, I just need you to know. It ain't going down like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know who's not getting a license? You ain't. And it was just a moment of like, okie dokie. <laughs> it was awesome. Because <laughs> they shut up. <laughs> In case you guys haven't noticed, these are sisters over here. Before I throw this over to Becky, I want to acknowledge another powerhouse woman that we haven't acknowledged yet tonight who came down the last week with her team because she cares about criminal justice reform and came down to the state legislature to explain the expungement process to so many legislators. State's attorney Kim Fox yes. was a rock star. A total rock star the last week. She deserves a round of applause. She was extremely helpful to all of us, and we're very grateful. I think we should also shout out Selena Villanueva as well. I mean, this woman's freshman legislator. Parachuted into this relationship that's existed for eight years with or more with all of us. Figured out how to speak our weird shorthand language. Got engaged. Kept her caucus engaged. She was... I mean, she's, she's not a mom, but she's, a, she's an honorary cannabis. She, yep. She's an actual cannabis. She's an honorary marijuana mom. She's fierce. <laughs> well, as I mentioned at the outset of this show, that this podcast is all about showcasing women uh, and the great things that they're doing in their own fields. And what do you think the impact was of having women, you, lead this bill on both sides of the legislature? And, and what do you think it says in general about the possibilities of continuing to get really big things done when you know, women have the opportunity to lead? You know, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the things that, one of the questions too that you had talked about was it's different legislatively than by referendum. And we had Republicans at the table with us from the start as well. That was, so it was bipartisan in both chambers. I don't think we could have gotten it passed if we didn't start out that way, even though we have super majorities in both, both chambers because of the nature of the bill and where some of our more conservative Democrats are. So, and I, I, I lead that in because that really does change the dynamic of how you actually get something like this done. And I tie that to the fact that women here did it is because 
We are, we are all for women who have very strong relationships across the aisle. We know how to forge that and make that part of the way we operate. And you don't see that all the time. And I think having those kinds of relationships and having those, the ability to, really it's all about trust. I mean, Springfield can be a very trust challenged environment. And it, really being good to your word and being willing to collaborate and share power is hugely powerful in Springfield. And I think women tend to just do that better. My Senate president, Cullerton, frequently says he thinks women should rule. He likes running women. He very much tries to recruit women. He thinks they handle legislation, big legislation, with a real sensitivity that gets everybody at the table and ends up in a more bipartisan, sort of everybody in, under the tent way. And I think that we have shown that to be the case. I think more women doing it. I know I'm a budget uh, budget appropriation chair. Toy is also our revenue chair. We could make sure that the pieces that we cared about from the budget, we're making sure we're funded in the budget. The legal aid clinics to make sure that they're actually going to help folks get those expungements done where it's not automatic. A large part of them are automatic. Some of them are not. They're going to need that help. You know, we could bring all of those hats that we wear to the table and accomplish that. And, and I do think it bodes well. And I really do believe that more women in leadership will lead to a much better outcome where we're actually focused on the outcome, not our own power. I, that's like a mic drop. I don't think there's anything we could add to that. That's like, yep, yep, well, she's, yep. <laughs> well, I, I hate to say this, but that's all the time that we have for it today. Wow. They, uh, they, wow. It goes by really fast. Each one of these is about 30 minutes. You're like, wait, I just started. But, you know, there's an after show, which is the Q&A. So we're not done yet, right? But I just want to thank everyone for coming out. So let's give a big round of applause to our panelists. Represent Kelly Cassie, Jahan Booth, Gordon Booth, Setters Toy Hutchinson, and Heather Staines. Another round of applause to my co-host and comparable Jennifer Lee. Uh, once again, I'm Becky Carroll, CEO of C Strategies, strategic communications and public affairs firm, bringing passion and veteran experience to help our clients meet their business goals. <laughs> la, 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 la. Can you tell that I say that every single episode? Yes. Thanks again to our co-host today, Legalize Illinois and Illinois Democratic Women, and to our sponsors, Evolver, Chicago's first creative co-working space for women, and The Insurance People, a woman and minority-owned agency focused on small business health, individual health insurance, and Medicare supplements. President Alexander Eidenberg has been in the industry for 15 years and is known for out-of-the-box ideas to help folks get access to quality health care at the right price. And the broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music is by Christy Bennett's Boomy Gypsy Project. And to learn more about C-Strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at C-Strategies LLC. Thank you all for a great conversation tonight. Thank you, ladies. So come, let the world